My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for uh, coming and worshiping uh, with us today. We have uh, a lot uh, to cover here this morning, so we're just going to kind of dive uh, right into it. Uh, hopefully, uh, you took some uh, time uh, over the last couple days to do your uh, pre-sermon uh, homework reading assignment to read the four short chapters of the book of Ruth in preparation for what we're going to study today. Uh, perhaps you weren't uh, expecting to get an email from me uh, asking you to do a little uh, pre-sermon homework. Uh, as I, I thought about it, I thought that, uh, you know, perhaps I'm actually on to something here. Uh, if this works, uh, as it kind of works in the greater Christian world, you know, you come up with a, what's a good idea, and, and then you go and you write a book about it. And, uh, and then you get on the speaking tour, and so I was thinking about kind of that stuff, and then once you get on the speaking tour, you know, you trade in a, a pair of uh, slacks and a red sweater for some uh, skinny jeans, $600 sneakers, and uh, start growing a beard, so that's kind of what I was thinking about, but uh, you're supposed to laugh more than that. That's not very good at all. Evan laughed at that for me, but... Uh, you know, that, that, as I think about those things, that is like the last thing in the world I would want to do. I would much rather uh, spend my days uh, with all of you uh, in obscurity. This is a good place uh, to be. So, hey, after reading Ruth, you might have come away with the idea that it's pretty much like one of those uh, Lifetime movie channel uh, love stories. Because you know, Ruth, uh, it fits the storyline, if you think about it. There's a, a bunch of bad things that happen to a, a female protagonist. And, uh, and then along the way, uh, it ultimately gets resolved because some dashing guy comes into the picture, uh, rescues her from her trials, and, and everybody uh, lives happily ever after. And many people will look at the book of Ruth, and that's what they will ultimately conclude. It's just this wonderful love story. And if you've come to that conclusion, I, I understand that, but I'm here to tell you this morning that Ruth is much more about that than that. You see, the book of Ruth isn't merely about Ruth being rescued from ruin by Boaz. What it's really about is you and I being rescued from ruin by Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to uh, explain all of this to you by actually not looking at Ruth here initially, but I want to take us to uh, the book of Luke. So if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, we're going to look at verses 13 to 27. Uh, if you don't have a Bible uh, with you or a Bible on your phone, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Feel free to grab one of those. Uh, you'll find uh, Luke chapter 24 on page 885 of the Bibles that we provide. And uh, if you were able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, reading to verse 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us 
They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Would you pray with me, please? Precious Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you as a needy people. Lord, we are in need of your presence in our lives each and every moment. And Father, we thank you that you have provided us the church where we can come together and uh, bring honor and glory to, uh, to your name and that we might lift you high and exalt you. And uh, Lord, I pray this morning for us, I pray that we would have soft hearts to learn from your word. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, work powerfully in the lives of those who are here. Lord, that you would meet them uh, wherever they are at, in the midst of whatever need that they might have. And Lord God, we as a people recognize that we are not the only church in central Pennsylvania, that Lord, that there are scores of churches in this area, and Dauphin, and Cumberland, and Perry, and Lancaster County, Heavenly Father, that are proclaiming the name of Jesus. And Lord, we want to we pray for those churches this day. We specifically, Heavenly Father, pray for Pastor Thomas Keyes, and Solid Rock Missionary Bible Church, or Baptist Church, Heavenly Father, and Edgemont. Bless them, dear God. And Lord, I want to pray also for uh, Dave Hess and the kind folks at Christ Community who have been so kind to us over all these years. I remember in those first uh, years, Heavenly Father, how Christ Community uh, provided us our first keyboard and how Dave prayed for us. And so, Lord God, I, I lift those men up to you and their congregations and pray, Heavenly Father, that you would work powerfully and their churches this day also. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here uh, in the last chapter of Luke's gospel, we find uh, uh, two of Jesus' followers on the day of Jesus' resurrection, and they're, they're making a, a seven-mile journey from the city of Jerusalem uh, where Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. They're making this journey on the, the Sunday of the resurrection, and they're heading to a little town about seven miles away called Emmaus. And they are unaware that, that Jesus has risen from the dead. They have absolutely no clue. They, and uh, they, they are, as the text tells us, they're very sad the one who had been with them for the last few years, who had encouraged them, they, they saw him die on the cross. They saw him laid into a tomb, and now it appears that, that the body is gone. They don't understand what in the world is going on. And as they walk, they encounter the risen Jesus. But they don't recognize him. They, they, they have no idea who this man is who's walking beside them. And after a brief conversation Regarding the events of the crucifixion, Jesus says these words to them. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. That verse, verse 27, is the key verse to understanding the entirety of the Old Testament, including the book of Ruth. You see, the entirety of the Old Testament, which is mentioned here, which is what is meant by Moses and all the prophets, it ultimately points to Jesus. Every book of the Old Testament foreshadows Jesus Christ. And Jesus in his gospel, the, the repentance of sin and, and forgiveness through grace and faith is the common thread that is woven through all of those old texts. And it's consistently there 
for us to see. If only we take the time to actually look. So let me take a moment and summarize the book of Ruth for for those of you who have uh, come here and uh, were unaware of the homework assignment or uh, who perhaps didn't do your homework assignment, which is something that uh, identified me as I was making my way through Central Dolphin High School. Uh, but the, the book of Ruth is 3,000 years old. It is set in, in what is known as the time of the judges. The time of the judges is this period, it was 400 years long, uh, that, that began with the death of Joshua, who was the one who led the Israelites into the promised land, goes for 400 years to the establishment of the first king of Israel, Saul. And it is a terrible time in the history of God's people. And the very last verse of Judges tells us why. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a time very similar to the time of Judges. Now, during this time of the Judges, uh, here's what would happen. The the Jewish people collectively, they they would sin. They they would sin by pursuing false gods. They'd be worshiping all these other false gods. They would intermarry with people outside of their faith. It wasn't a, a race intermarriage issue or anything like that. It was we're marrying people that are outside of our faith. They would engage in all kinds of sexual immorality. And as a result, God would punish them. And he would typically punish them by raising up their enemies and allowing their enemies to come in and attack them. And after suffering for a period of time, the Jewish people would figure it out. They would repent of their sins. And God would mercifully raise up a judge to come and rescue the people. And they would follow the Lord for a while. And then they would sin. And the cycle would repeat itself over and over and over again. And it's during this cycle of of sin and punishment and repentance and forgiveness and restoration that we find the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, we're we're introduced to the the primary character here, a a woman by the name of Naomi, whose name happens to mean pleasant. And she is married to a man by the name of Elimelech. And together they have two sons. Now, Naomi and her husband, they, they, they were born in Bethlehem, they were raised in Bethlehem, they were married in Bethlehem, and they were to stay in Bethlehem, which... The town itself, meaning of the word Bethlehem, is actually house of bread. But what we discover here is that they have recently moved to the land of Moab, which is roughly about 50 miles to the uh, let me do my southeast uh, of Bethlehem, on the other side of the Dead Sea. And they went there because Bethlehem, the house of bread, was ironically experiencing a famine. Now, Moab was a very, very bad place. It was a pagan land where everyone worshipped pagan gods. And it was the last place that any faithful Jew should go to find provision. But this is what Naomi and her husband chose to do. Rather than trusting in God and waiting for God's provision in Bethlehem, Naomi and her husband, they find their own provision, or they search for their own provision in the land of Moab. And some of us sitting in this room right now can relate to that. Because we have done similar things. We've had times in our lives where where God is not providing for us in the way that we think that he should provide for us. And so we take matters into our own hands. 
and we leave the security of his promises and commands, and we seek our own provision, and what we discover is it ends in disaster. And this was certainly the case for Naomi and her family. Because upon arriving in Moab, things very quickly fall apart. The first thing that happens is Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he dies. Then Naomi's boys, who were to be faithful Jewish boys, meet Moabite women. And they fall in love with these Moabite women. That people who are of a different ethnicity, and that's not the issue. The issue isn't the ethnicity, the issue is the faith. They're, they were worshiping a foreign god. Yet, yet the, 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 the boys, they, they marry these women. And we're told the names of the women. The first one's name was Orpah, not to be confused with the talk show host Oprah. The second one is Ruth, not to be confused with a 90-year-old intimacy therapist, Dr. Ruth, all right? So we don't want to confuse these people. Yeah, you're right, Ella. Thank you. And for the next 10 years, it appears that Naomi's daughters-in-law are unable to bear children. And then, adding to the tragedy of it all, both boys die. Now, not only is Naomi a widow, now her two daughters-in-laws are widows. And somehow these three women, they, they need to, to figure out how to survive. Because this is, this is not the 21st century. This is 3,000 years ago. There, there, there's not insurance policies and and welfare, or, or social security survivors. but There's none of that stuff. You know what's waiting for them? Poverty. Abuse. And they somehow, they've got to figure out how to live through life. And in the midst of her grief, their surprise information comes along to Naomi. That, that the famine has lifted in Bethlehem, and, and she and her two daughters, they decide that they're going to go back there. And they're, they're in the middle of making this journey. And I don't know exactly what happened. We only can speculate. But somewhere along the journey, we know that Naomi tells the two girls, you should go back to Moab. Now, most probably, Naomi did some thinking along the way. And she thought, here I have these two young women. They have no children they're going to they're gonna move into to Bethlehem in the midst of Israel. They're going to be foreigners. They're going to be outcasts. Nobody's going to ever marry them. They're never going to be able to have children. It's better for them to ultimately go back to their own home. Now, Orpah hears this, and she says, that's a good idea. And she goes back home. But Ruth she refuses to leave Naomi. And she pledges to Naomi some of the most beautiful words of all of Scripture. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you'll go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth is all in. She is in physically, she's in emotionally, and most importantly, she's in spiritually. She has rejected the multiple gods of, of the faith of which she grew up in. And she has placed her faith now in the one and only God of the Bible. And so Naomi and Ruth, they arrive in Bethlehem. And they have absolutely nothing. They've, they've lost everything. All of their worldly possessions. And, and they've lost their, their, their spouses. And, and they're basically 
ruined. But they just so happened to come into Bethlehem in the time of the harvest. And Ruth, of her own initiative, goes and does what, what people living in poverty did back then, and in some cases do today. She, she begins to, to glean. She goes to a field that's being harvested, and, and, and she hangs back, and she picks up the leftovers that are left behind. We have people who glean in our culture right now. Every trash day, there, there are people who drive through our communities, right? And they, they, they find the people who put out metal or old bikes or whatever, they gather all the stuff up. I intentionally, Kathy and I, when we go to get rid of stuff, I, I intentionally put stuff out that I know people will take. Put a sign on free, take the stuff. So this is what's happening. She's gleaning, she's, she's collecting this, this grain that's missed from these harvesters. And in the midst of, of this gleaning, she meets this very kind owner by the name of Boaz. He's significantly older than she is. But Boaz takes an interest in Ruth. He makes sure that she's fed, and he instructs his harvesters to intentionally leave some of the grain that they pick behind so that she has even extra to get. And so that evening, Ruth comes home with nearly 30 pounds of barley, and she begins to tell Naomi about Boaz. Now, instantly, Naomi recognizes the name because Boaz is a close relative of her deceased husband, which makes him something of this term that we don't really use in our culture anymore, but this guy called a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer is a close relative of a deceased person who can redeem the deceased person's family and property and possessions by bearing the cost himself. He can also marry the deceased widow, and the children that they have are actually part of the lineage of the person who was ultimately deceased. Now, through Naomi's prompting, Ruth takes the initiative to ask Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, and he agrees to do so. And there's a lot that goes into this, but it pretty much gets summarized in the couple verses here in chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in all Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you, then seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That, brothers and sisters, is the account of Ruth. It's a 3,000-year-old story of ruin and redemption for two widowed women. But it is also, it is a foreshadowing of the story of ruin and redemption of you and me and everyone else who repents of their sin and receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So where does the gospel show up in the book of Ruth? Because that's what we're striving to do over these next couple of weeks is we, we look for Jesus and his gospel in the Old Testament. Well, folks, it is everywhere. And I've summarized it for this morning to make it relatively easy for us into three basic areas. Number one, the gospel shows up in the hardness of Naomi's life. We see the gospel in the hardness of, of this woman's life. Number two, the gospel shows up in, in the beauty of Boaz's redemption. And number three, the gospel shows up, and we don't want to miss this, 
in the security of the sovereign God. So let's take just a few moments and work through this. Let's talk a little bit about how the gospel shows up in the hardness of life. Back in the middle of November, we were wrapping up our, our series on the genuine church. And I shared with you some of Jesus' first uh, recorded words that were found in, in Luke chapter 4. Uh, Jesus at that time was in the early parts of his ministry. He was in uh, the synagogue of Nazareth, and he was publicly reading uh, the book of Isaiah, specifically the 61st chapter, which is a prophecy of the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, and what the Messiah was going to do. And this is what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue, they were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, God the Father, he sends Jesus the Son to clean up our mess. Folks, which actually has a name. It's called sin. Sin is both doing what God says that we shouldn't do, while at the same time not doing what God says that we should do. And when we sin, it always brings with us brokenness and hardship, not only for, for ourselves, not, not only for the people that we love, not only for the people who we don't love, and, not all, and also for people who we don't even know. And sin brings with it poverty and captivity. It brings with us blindness that keeps us for, from seeing things for how they actually are. And so we walk through life completely deceived. And it brings oppression. And all of these things, Jesus tells us from reading Isaiah 61 that he came to ultimately remedy. And as such, sin is an integral part of the gospel of Jesus Christ because you don't get the good news without the bad news. We try to tell people that, that, that Jesus loves them and has a great plan for their life. That's a terrible place to start. Because if people don't feel like they have a need, why in the world do I need Jesus? You've got you to you start with sin. You've got to start with that, that, that I'm jacked up and you're jacked up. You're messed up and I'm messed up. And the, and the reason my world is messed up is because our world, everybody is messed up. You have to help people understand. Sin is the beginning of the gospel. And in the account of Ruth, we see the results of sin. Ruth shows, up, shows us the, the general sinfulness of the world and that that general sinfulness of the world makes things hard on us. Mike Bongo talked about this last week when, when he took us through the, the results or through the, 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 the narrative of the fall back in Genesis Chapter 3, Mike explained to us that original sin, it messed up all of creation. And we see this play out in the book of Naomi, or Ruth. As Naomi firsthand, uh, experiences firsthand, she experiences the fallenness of a creation which manifests itself, what? In a famine. The, the famines are not a result of global warming. Famines are a result of sin. That's where they come from. We live in a broken world. It was never supposed to be anything like that. This famine was not Naomi's fault, but her life and the life of her family was made hard because of sin's negative impact 
on creation. And the same holds true for many of us. There are people in this room whose lives are very, very hard because our world is broken as a result of sin. Things have come into their lives, into your lives, and into my life that that are completely outside of our control, that, that radically and negatively impact our lives. There's disease, natural disaster, even the geographic place that we were born that we have absolutely no control over come together to make our life hard. But that's not the only thing that makes life hard. So do our sinful choices. And Naomi experienced this firsthand. In order to escape that famine that she had no control over, that wasn't her fault, she makes a decision that she does have control over. And she decides to go with her husband to Moab. But there's a problem. Moab is a pagan place where there's pagan worship. And the people of Israel were called to keep themselves separate from those lands and those gods. But rather than trust God to provide for them and their obedience, Naomi and her husband choose to provide for themselves in disobedience. And sadly, Naomi experiences the consequences of that sin. She loses her husband. Her sons marry people outside of their Jewish faith. Her daughters-in-law are unable or unsuccessful in conceiving children. And then both the boys die. And Naomi, she looks at her life. And what does she conclude? Look at verse 13. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And brothers and sisters, when you and I sin. We experience God's righteous judgment. It is not unfair of God to punish us when we sin. God is doing what any good judge does. When someone transgresses a law, a good judge punishes the person for transgressing the law. And folks, many times, God's righteous judgment against our sin brings hardship into our lives. But there's a a third thing that happens. Not not only do our sinful choices make our life hard, not only does the the general sinfulness of, of creation make our lives hard, but, but the sinful choices of other people make our lives hard. Now, this is not explicitly seen in the book of Luth, but it, or Ruth, but it is an inescapable fact of life. And we see this in Deuteronomy. God is in the process of giving Moses the Ten Commandments. And he's giving Moses a, the commandment about worshiping false gods. And this is what God says to Moses. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What's he jealous about? He's jealous about you and I being aligned with the right God. He cares about us. He's jealous for us. He doesn't want us focused somewhere else. I mean, these false gods... God doesn't need to be jealous of the false gods. They've got nothing on him. He's jealous for you and me. And he says this, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, the sins of the father, they affect the son. 
and the grandson and the great-grandson and the great-great-grandson. That's the way that it works. We don't like it. We don't think it's fear. But brothers, that is a spiritual reality. And we know it. Why? Because there are people sitting in this room right now whose lives have been hurt because of the decisions of their parents or of their grandparents. And then what they do is they make lousy decisions. And they sin, and they affect their kids. This is the way that, that sin works. God says, you choose not to do that, I will bring more blessing than you can possibly ever imagine. You see, tragically, we suffer because of the sins of others. And equally tragically, our sin affects others. And I tell you this, because it's only when we truly understand the horrific consequences of sin, that we can fully grasp the beauty of Jesus' redemption for us. The reality of sin, it's the first way that, that the book of Ruth points us towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the second way. It shows up in the beauty of Boaz's redemption. So to start this point off, we need to talk a little bit more about the Bible's concept of redemption. To redeem means to reclaim or to buy back at a price. And what gets redeemed in the Bible is a person, an animal, a land, a nation, and it's always redeemed from a, a, a difficult situation or from an enemy. And when redeem is combined with this term kinsman, where you get kinsman redeemer, as we explained a little earlier, it's a person who's responsible to, to marry the wife of a deceased relative to, to continue uh, to keep the person's property and to be able to provide for the, the, the widow and to be able to uh, have another generation follow them. So this would be a brother marrying the wife of his deceased brother so that his dead brother's uh, lineage continues on. Now I want you to see how Boaz's redemption of Ruth and ultimately Naomi foreshadows the redemption of you and me. What's the first thing that happens? Boaz notices Ruth. He notices her. She, she, she's not looking for someone to redeem her. She's, she's just doing life, trying to survive. And, and this person who is uh, wealthy and, and, and beyond her, he actually notices her. Secondly, uh, well, let me show you, show you the verse here. Then, verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Ruth's not looking for Boaz. She's just trying to survive. Boaz sees her. Secondly, Boaz, after he sees her, he reaches out to her, shows her kindness, protects her, and provides her for her. Unmarried ladies in this room right now, if you're hanging out with somebody who may have noticed you, but, but doesn't show you kindness, doesn't protect you, and doesn't provide for you, kick the dude to the streets. Get rid of him. He is worthless. If he can't treat you well while he's trying to win you over, how in the world do you think he's going to treat you once he has you? Kick the dude to the corner. Kick him further than that. Kick him to Warmlysburg or something like that. Now, now look at how this plays out. Verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field 
that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So in an act of kindness, Boaz says, I want you to, to stay in my fields. And I'm going to make sure that, that the guys that are working in my fields don't mess with you. And you can drink of, of, of the water that they have gotten together. And then Boaz's kindness is super impressive. Why? Because Ruth is a stinking Moabite. She's an outsider. He, and, and he comes. This is, she's someone who's looked down upon. And, you know, and what, when, he, the guy, when he asked the guys about her, what, what's the first thing the guy said? She's a Moabite. Everybody knows she's a Moabite. So, so he's giving this, this lady dignity. And what's even more remarkable about his kindness is that he instructs the harvesters to drop some of the harvest. Folks, this comes at a cost to him. It comes at a price. Now, when it is revealed that Boaz is a close, closely related to Naomi's husband, is able to serve not only as Naomi's kinsman redeemer, but also Ruth's kinsman redeemer, he does everything that's required to ensure that they are redeemed, and he does it in a way, and this is the important piece, he does it in a way that honors God. Because here's what happens. He comes and he says, you know what? Yeah, I'm a kinsman redeemer, but there's a closer relative. There's another person who should get first dibs on taking care of you than me. He doesn't try to hide that fact, you know, sweep it under the carpet, like, oh, I didn't know about that. He, he, he deals with it. This whole thing could completely fall apart, right? Because the, the first guy might say, yeah, I'm going to do this. But the first guy, now, now look at the, the, what, he, what happens here, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Look at the integrity of Boaz. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. Boaz, sir, Boaz does not want that to happen. But he wants to honor God more than he wants his own desires. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Boaz understands there's another person. What does he do? He wants to honor God. And I'd say single women in this room right now, if the dude that you're hanging out with doesn't honor God, kick him past Wormleysburg. <laughs> State College. Somewhere. I mean, because if he can't honor God, he's not going to honor you. And when the closer relative decides not to serve as a kinsman redeemer, Boaz steps into the gap. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Ruth 4. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are the witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Shilon and to Mahalan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahalan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native, his native place. You are witnesses this day. And all of this, brothers and sisters, it foreshadows what Jesus has done for me and what Jesus has done for you. Jesus noticed us. In the mass of humanity, I don't know what's like over six billion people in the world now. For those of you who repented of your sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, somewhere along the lines, Jesus noticed you. But not only did he notice you, he took interest in you. He showed kindness to you. He provided for you. He protected you. And ultimately, Jesus redeemed you, and he redeemed me. He bought us with a price which came from his blood. And he did it all in a way that honored God the Father.
because we're told that he was tempted in every way but did not sin. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' redemption of you and me is an amazing gift. It should drive us to, to love Jesus. It should drive us to honor him and obey him with all of our hearts. And it should also drive us to joyously tell others about what God has done for us and what he can do for them. Final point, just take a few moments. The gospel shows us and the security of God's sovereignty. In Isaiah 46, God reminds us of who he is. Listen to what he says. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Put simply, because God is God, when he decides to do something, there is nothing that is going to stand in his way. There is no power in this world. There is no power in, in all of the universe. There is no scheme of man. There is no sin that can thwart God's plans. What God is ultimately doing in the book of Ruth is preparing a way for Christ in a manner that nobody possibly could see. Look at verses 21 through 22. Salome fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Obed is the son of Boaz and Ruth. And according to the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1, Obed is in the lineage of Jesus. And so is a foreigner, a woman from a pagan land who at one time worshipped pagan gods who happens to be Obed's mom, Ruth. And Matthew, the writer of his gospel, he wants us to understand that. Matthew wants us to understand that, 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 that Jesus' lineage is not what you would think Jesus' lineage is. There's messed up people in Jesus' lineage, which is hope for all of us messed up people. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, who was a prostitute, and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salom, and Salom, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, specifically puts it out there, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and I messed up there because the prostitute is Rahab, right, not Tamar. Uh, I may have messed that up too, but uh, thank you. And Solomon, the uh, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Look at what God's sovereignty does. He was at work using a famine and Naomi's disobedience to drive her to Moab. He's working in the death of her husband, the disobedience of her two sons in marrying foreign women, the inability of her daughters-in-law to conceive, the death of her son, the faithfulness of Ruth, and the godliness of Boaz to create a son named Obed, who would father a son named Jesse, who would father a king named David, upon whose throne one day would sit the Son of God named Jesus, who would one day go to the cross and purchase by his blood my redemption and yours from the curse of sin and death 
and who would be raised from the tomb to secure our eternity in heaven and to give us hope in this world and even in the midst of the greatest ruin that we will always know the greatest redemption. And folks, if God can take that entire mess and give us Jesus, what do you think he can do with the mess of our lives? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. There is security in God's sovereignty. God is sovereignly at work in the midst of all of the joy and all of the hardships in our life, working together for something beautiful that we can't see. He did it for Ruth. And he will do it for the balance of his children who love him with all of their heart. Let's pray. Lord God, you are truly remarkable. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to uh, uh, share with these folks uh, here in this room and at home. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that this Advent season, that uh, Jesus, that you would show up powerfully in the lives of every person in this room. Lord, for those who have yet to come to uh, repent of their sins and receive you as Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that, that you would begin to draw them to yourself. That, Lord, that they would begin to see that you are taking notice. And, Lord, that they would lovingly uh, come to you, knowing that you are a God who forgives. And, Lord, that they might repent of their sins and receive you as Lord and Savior. And, Lord God, for those in this room who, like myself, you have already done that for, Lord God, would you protect our hearts Lord, would you keep sin far from us? When we inevitably fail, Heavenly Father, would you remind us of your gospel, that your grace is greater than our sin. Lord, that your love is, is more powerful than our failures. And Lord, would you uh, help us to be uh, your heralds in this very dark world? Lord, let us not be overcome by evil, but let us overcome evil with your good. For you are powerful and kind, and your will will never be thwarted. And Father, thank you for this time that we are about to uh, take this offering. Uh, Lord, we have an extraordinarily generous family, dear God. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help uh, our leaders to be wise stewards of your resources that we would never squander them, Heavenly Father. They would always be used, uh, Lord, to advance the gospel here in Swatara Township and around the world. Father, thank you for this time. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen.